Our scripture lesson this morning is from Luke's gospel. It is Luke's account of the Easter story, reading from Luke, the 24th chapter, verses 1 through 12. Let us give our attention to the reading of God's word. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb taking spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all of this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, And then he went home, amazed at what had happened. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts this day find acceptance in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Like millions of people around the world this day, in different kinds of settings and circumstances, from grand cathedrals to grass huts to hospital rooms to uh, corners in your home when you're, where you're sitting in front of a monitor, perhaps, we're together to hear a story, an amazing story, a powerful story, perhaps the most powerful story in the history of humanity and in the history of the world. It is the story of a dead man being raised to life by the power of God. We call it Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a story that has the power to transform people and institutions and all kinds of circumstances, nations and even a world. And interestingly, each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have their own individual accounts of that first Easter morning. And they differ in some of the details, just as if I would ask four of you to write up a description of what is taking place in worship this morning. It wouldn't be the same account. You would notice different things. You would hear different things. You would observe different things. You would even be writing, perhaps, uh, for different audiences, as were they. So the story is told differently, even in the Gospels. And what I want to emphasize this morning is that this story is also heard differently by people across the earth and in our churches and on our monitors. How we hear the Easter story depends on many things, on our life circumstances, on what we were dealing with in our homes and communities before we turned our monitors on this morning. It depends on our education. It depends on our preconceptions. It depends on many things. So how do we hear the story of Easter? It is a transformational story. 
And if it's heard rightly, it can change us and it can change the world through us. Of course, much more popular and poignant is the story of Christmas, which we all love. The world knows and loves the story of the birth of Jesus in, in Bethlehem. Uh, but it is not that story so much as this story of Easter, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave that has created the church of Jesus Christ, an institution that has survived the sword of persecutors, the scorn of philosophers, the failings of its own leaders and the folly of its own members to, to spread into every corner of the earth, to every continent, to every race and tribe of human beings, transforming wherever it has gone. It is a story that cannot be ignored. It demands a response, depending on how you hear it and what you hear in it. It has transformed all manner of people. In the scriptures, we know of the transformation of Simon Peter, who changed from a racist into an agent of reconciliation. It changed an assassin, Paul of Tarsus, into the one of the great saints of the church. And so radical are these changes that this story brings about that people describe it as being born again or born anew or born from above as if life has a whole new meaning, a whole new set of values and commitments. It is a story, if heard, needs to be embraced but it doesn't have to be embraced. You can hear it without embracing it or doing anything about it. A novel and a motion picture of uh, a previous generation was written by Lloyd Douglas called The Robe. And there is a scene in that book that has touched many people. It tells of Marcellus, who was a Roman centurion that was according to legend, over, oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. And after presiding over this crucifixion, he returns home to tell his fiancée, Diana, what he has experienced. And he tells her about what he has seen and experienced in this man that died on that central cross. And Diana responds to the words of Marcellus with these words, it is a beautiful story, Marcellus, a beautiful mystery. Let it remain so. We don't have to do anything about it, do we? Let us plan to live each for the other just as if it hadn't happened. Well, not to worry, Diana. That has actually occurred. Many people receive the story and hear the story, but really don't do anything about it because they can see no connection between this incredible Easter story and their own lives and circumstances. Oh, they like it. It's a beautiful story. And they like Easter. They like Easter with its beautiful springtime flowers, its mysteries, but they don't connect with it personally. They may uh, have gone to church before this age of coronavirus, gathered with the crowd somewhere in church on an Easter morning, and they may have returned following the Easter services and said, well, uh, wasn't the crowd impressive today? Uh, the music, the brass playing, the organ at full stop, the choirs, the anthems, the hymns, the lilies. It was all so beautiful and meaningful. Even the sermon wasn't half bad on an Easter morning. 
But it doesn't have anything to do with us, does it, once we get home? I mean, Easter is over and done with. Another day on the liturgical calendar has passed. But so often the businessman would return on Monday to business as usual, dog eat dog, look out for number one. After the benediction, there were many people who were sitting in the pews who would resurrect the same old grudges and resentments that have crippled them for years rehash those grudges that they carry with them, return to their destructive patterns of thought and life, even returning to the same old stale sins they had before. They may have shouted out with the congregation, Christ is risen, risen indeed, hallelujah. And yet it appears to a casual observer that when they leave, they have left Christ in the tomb because his risen presence has little, if anything, to do with them. They may have heard the Easter story, but they didn't really embrace it. That's one way to hear the story, just with indifference or irrelevance, because you don't connect to it. Then again, there are certain people who hear the Easter story every year with skepticism and disbelief, and there's nothing new about that. I mean, how in the world can the dead come back to life? Who, who can believe that, really? Surely this story must have been created by the early church. Surely this is the figment of someone's fertile imagination. No, they conclude, someone must have stolen the body. And they created this story of the resurrection. They manufactured this tale. And they didn't really see Jesus alive after this. They just made up that as well. Now, do you think that's plausible? Do you think it's really possible that those apostles would give their lives for a known fabrication? I've always believed personally that the greatest evidence for the resurrection is not the empty tomb. Too many things could account for an empty tomb. But not many things could account for the changed lives of those apostles who three days earlier on Good Friday were hiding in the back alleys of Jerusalem too embarrassed to be even associated with Jesus. And now, after his resurrection and his resurrection appearances, they're willing to lay down their lives on the conviction that his resurrection was real. It was a fact of history, and it was a fact of their personal lives as well. Death no longer held them, even as it had lost its grip on Jesus that Easter morning. But, of course, this isn't a new way of hearing the Easter story either. We find it even in the scriptures, even among the apostles and followers of Jesus. Did you hear it this morning? The, the women return to the apostles and tell them what they had experienced at the tomb and the angel that had spoken to them. And we read that it seemed to them an idle tale. Who could believe this? The NIV version of the Bible says it was nonsense to them. Dead men don't come back to life. Thomas, we know Thomas so well, we associate him so much with doubting that we almost think that's his first name, Doubting Thomas, we refer to him as. But I would be like him. If I had seen the risen Lord, I would want to touch those nail marks. Is this really you? Is that flesh and blood, that's you, Jesus? Matthew tells in his gospel that right before the ascension, the apostles were gathered to worship Jesus. And we read that though they believed, some still doubted. 
even among his closest followers. Years later, Paul is preaching to the intelligentsia of Athens. And he's telling about the life and story of Jesus. And he gets to the point of the resurrection and men began to turn and walk away. You know, they just couldn't comprehend a resurrection. Someone who is dead being restored to life. I wonder if you would agree with me that we miss out on so much in life simply because we have these blind assumptions that some things simply cannot be or that some things can be. We don't believe in miracles. They must not really happen, do they? I've not experienced it in my own life. And surely we trust in human knowledge and man's capacity for intelligence and uh, reasoning. And so it is with that we have the same old dogmatism that has crippled humanity from day one. We make a priori assumptions about what can be and what can't be, and then we interpret all the evidence in light of all what we have already decided can be or cannot be. I mean, the earth is the center of the universe, isn't it? I watched the sun rise this morning. It has to be. The sun went up and down, or will go down this afternoon. So the earth must be the center of the universe. And you might correct me and say, oh, no, that's the earth rotating you saw. It's not the sun coming up and going down. But you see, that's contrary to my experience. I watched it come up this morning. Oh, you can't sail west to find the east, Columbus. Everybody knows the world is flat. So you can't do that. And dead is dead, irreversible. Something else must account for that empty tomb and that Easter morning miracle. I wonder when we will ever learn that we don't have to sacrifice our intelligence to embrace the gospel and the Christian faith. And neither do we always have to limit the faith to the size of the human mind or always be about the business of making what we believe as culturally and intellectually palatable as possible. It's always intrigued me when people with great intellectual gifts who may have been agnostics at best or even atheists at worst, and when as adults they finally embrace the gospel and Jesus Christ, it's not some watered-down version of the gospel that they turn to, but it is Jesus, the Son of God, crucified, dead, and risen Men like C.S. Lewis, who denied the gospel for years. Dorothy Sayers, John Updike, or in our own day, Dr. Francis Collins, the director of the Human Genome Research Institute, all of whom denied the existence of God and the story of the resurrection. Lee Strobel, I'm sure many of you have read his books. He, he was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and he set out initially years ago to disprove the evidence for Jesus as the Son of God. And in the process, he became a believer along the way, and he ended up writing many books defending Christianity. Frank Morrison was the same story. He said, I'm going to write a book that will throw this nonsense about Jesus being dead and coming back to life out the window. I will explode that myth, that legend. 
that foolishness of people in the first century to believe that. But in the process of writing and researching, something happened. He did an about face, and he wrote a book. The book was entitled, Who Moved the Stone? Defending the Physical Resurrection of Jesus. And he said afterwards, I couldn't avoid the irrefutable evidence. I kept bumping into the evidence, and I discovered the resurrection to be true. And Francis Collins, author of the widely acclaimed book, The Language of God, a scientist presents evidence for belief. He was a committed atheist, and he turned to physical chemistry to unravel all the mysteries of life. And then one of his patients, Dr. Collins' patients, and it may have been in North Carolina because he was in North Carolina for a while, for a while at the medical university, uh, challenged him to write what he believed and why he believed it. And so he undertook that task, and in the process, he changed. He was transformed. This is what he said in an interview later after uh, he came to faith. For me, that leap of faith came in my 27th year after a search to learn more about God's character, and, le and I was led to the person of Jesus Christ. Here is a person with remarkably strong historical evidence of his life who made astounding statements about loving your neighbor, whose claims about being God's son seemed to demand a decision about whether he was deluded or the real thing. After resisting for new, nearly two years, I found it impossible to go on living in such a state of uncertainty, and I became a follower of Jesus. I like that he wrote, I became a follower of Jesus. He didn't say I became just a believer in Jesus. It's so easy to believe without following. But it's very difficult not to follow if you truly believe. So if you're hearing this story, wherever you are in whatever your life circumstances, and you're hearing it with skepticism and disbelief and doubt, don't worry, you have a lot of company. It has been around ever since there was an empty tomb, and people have struggled through that. And I would charge you, or challenge you, if that is your circumstance today, then undertake a research project for yourself to determine what you believe and, and why you believe it. And you may simply find yourself being changed in the process. So we hear this story in all different kinds of ways, with irrelevance, with indifference, with disbelief and skepticism. We even hear it with hilarity. Now that will surprise many of you as it has surprised me in recent years. There's not sufficient time to go fully into this. If you want to investigate it a little more, you might read Frederick Beekner's book, Telling the Truth. The gospel is comedy, tragedy, and fairy tale. But at any rate, wait, I, rate, I read in the Journal for Preachers a few years ago, there's a story, an account of an amazing service that takes place on Easter morning in some Eastern Orthodox churches. Now, Eastern Orthodoxy is certainly the most traditional, the most staid of all Christian communions and denominations. But some of them have a practice on Easter morning where they go to the churches and the priest instead of leading traditional worship, which hadn't changed much in, since the 11th century among the Orthodox, and instead of leading that worship service, the priest tells jokes. 
Not religious jokes. Just jokes to make people laugh. I'm afraid if I tried that, I'd be run out of this pulpit, probably run out of town. Especially the jokes I would have to share, probably. But at any rate, they're not pulpit, pulpit worthy, maybe. But that's what happens. And they get people to laugh. And there's something about that. Laughing at the vanity and the pretense of humankind. To think that you can keep God in the grave or keep God from accomplishing his love and his purposes. It was interesting if you turned in uh, to our Tenebrae service on this past uh, Good Friday. Uh, our choir sang a lovely piece by Layton, actually a, a composer of the 20th century, but the words of the anthem come from Abelard, who was a 12th century French poet and philosopher. And this is how that anthem concluded Friday evening with these words. This is the night of tears, the three days space, sorrow abiding of the eventide, until the day break with the risen Christ and hearts that sorrowed shall be satisfied. So may our hearts share in thine anguish, Lord, that they may sharers of thy glory be. Heavy with weeping, may the three days pass to win the laughter of thine Easter day. To win the laughter of our Easter day. Years ago, I heard a sermon by Kenneth Pfeiffer down in New Orleans. And he was preaching about the angels laughing as they sat on the tomb at the resurrection of Jesus. So how are you hearing the Easter story this morning? Sitting there in front of your monitor? Indifferently? With doubt? With skepticism? With laughter? With belief? With trust? That it is so? I hope it is the latter. I hope you're hearing the Easter story this year with your, not only your ears, but your eyes, your heart, your soul, your hands and your feet. There's another way people hear this Easter story. It may be the most dangerous of all, and that's when you hear it simply out of habit. It's just a routine you go through annually in the church. I was talking to an older lady in our church just yesterday, and she and I agreed that we can't remember an Easter when we weren't in church. There must have been one at some point. We were sick or family was away somewhere. But neither one of us could recall an Easter when we were not present in church. So this Easter, if nothing else, will be memorable for that. We're celebrating it differently. And it's hard to treat it this year simply as a habit or a ritual. You had to go to some trouble to worship with us this morning. And as we worship this way, perhaps we realize as never the, before the central message of Easter. And it's really not about the bunnies and the Easter eggs. It's not about the lovely flowers that grace our sanctuaries, the lilies. It's not about the majestic music and the hymns and the anthems. It's not about the preaching. It's not even about religion. It's about 
life coming from death through the power and love of God. It's about redemption and renewal. It's about lives being transformed by the power of God. Let me end the story from Lloyd Douglas's The Robe. Because when Diana says, let's just go on as if it hadn't happened, this is what Marcella says to her. I can't go on as if it hadn't happened. It's not clear what I am to do, but I simply couldn't go back to living as I did, not even if I tried. I couldn't. So please, this year, do something about the Easter story, or even better, let it do something within you. My prayer is that in hearing it, you will embrace this story and the risen Lord behind it. And your life and your circumstances and perhaps even your world will be transformed because of what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing in you. Let us pray. Eternal God, we thank you this Easter morning for the profound beauty and the everlasting power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb. We pray that these days we'll see our Christ emerging from the tombs in which we and our generation have often placed him, tombs that have been enclosed with stones of indifference, of disbelief, of skepticism, even of churchly habit and routine, and sealed with the hardness of mind and heart by your grace, fill us with new reverence, new humility, new devotion, and enable us to celebrate your living presence and your transforming power as we eventually, in the days and weeks to come, return to the demands of our living. We ask these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our risen and reigning Lord. Amen.